Hi, I'm Hannah. And I'm Lauren. And this is the BioEats World Journal Club, where we discuss breakthrough scientific research, the new opportunities it presents, and how to take it from paper to practice. And today, we're talking about a brand new kind of medical device. So Lauren, we've never talked about medical devices on Journal Club before. What's so special about this one? There's a couple things, but my favorite is that it's restoring a reflex. So in a healthy person, your body is automatically adjusting blood pressure all the time. And this adjustment is governed by what's called the Barrow reflex. However, a spinal cord injury can disrupt this reflex and wreak havoc on your body's ability to control blood pressure. This has both short-term consequences like passing out, but also long-term consequences like increased risk of heart disease and stroke. So today I'm joined by Dr. Aaron Phillips of the University of Calgary to talk about his lab's work to reinstate this reflex in patients after a spinal cord injury using what's called a neuroprosthetic device. This device both senses blood pressure changes and activates the necessary neuronal structures. We discuss how his group determined which neuronal structures to stimulate, how they developed this medical device, and the really exciting results from their studies in rats, non-human primates, and humans. We start with Aaron explaining how a spinal cord injury impacts patients. So there's about half a million people living with spinal cord injury in North America. It's extremely complicated in that there's multiple, multiple neurological systems being affected. Motor function, autonomic function, a lot of different sensory functions. And what that leads to is a very expensive healthcare condition and quite an arduous healthcare journey for the folks that have spinal cord injury. They're going to lots of different specialists to look at lots of different functions and quite frequently. In terms of causes, there's multiple etiologies. So there's traumatic spinal cord injury, which is due quite often to motor vehicle accidents, violence, military activities. And that's really where a trauma impacts the spinal cord and causes a disruption in those circuits. There's also non-traumatic, and those can be from a variety of different factors. One of the more common causes of the non-traumatic is cancers in the spinal cord. So the tumors grow and they disconnect those fibers in the spinal cord. So as a doctor, treating a patient with a spinal cord injury. What aspects of a spinal cord injury are we good at treating versus what are some of the open questions or unsolved issues faced by these patients? In terms of what we're good at treating, I mean, since ancient Egyptian times, one of the earliest medical texts indicated that spinal cord injury is not a condition to be treated. These patients are not to be treated and they were left with very little in terms of options for therapy, for recovery. Not much has changed since then. We're still not very good at treating this condition. We have some limited therapies in the acute phase, but typically after a patient is about six months, and in most cases, even three months post-injury, they're considered in that state is how they will live their lives. Now, there's an entire medical community surrounding them that are trying to solve smaller subsequent issues resulting from the spinal cord injury. So for example, there's a lot of cardiovascular dysfunction after spinal cord injury in terms of blood pressure issues. There's also some bladder function issues after spinal cord injury that are a big priority for patients. And so that's kind of the pipeline in that there's not too, too much that's done to treat the spinal cord injury itself. But what that leads to is downstream, there's an entire community surrounding these folks that are trying to patchwork solve around these other subsequent issues. 
So you mentioned that one of the main issues is the cardiovascular issues, and that's the aspect of a spinal cord injury that you're really focusing on in this paper. So can you explain to me these cardiovascular issues and how that relates to the spinal cord injury? So the spinal cord doesn't just house circuits for motor and sensory function. This is the common perception of spinal cord injury because the general population views people with a spinal cord injury and sees a person in a wheelchair that can't, quote, feel their legs. So the spinal cord actually houses the circuits responsible for transmitting autonomic pathways. And autonomic pathways are really the things that are kind of running on autopilot in the background. One of those systems is that of the cardiovascular system. You don't have to consciously think of, oh, I need a lower blood pressure, now I'm going to sleep, or I need a higher blood pressure, now I'm going to exercise, or I stood up, I need to stabilize my blood pressure. So when those pathways are disrupted after a spinal cord injury, we no longer have the regions in our brain that's controlling blood pressure connected to our blood vessels, which are actually responsible for doing the changes in vessel tone to maintain blood pressure. So the spinal cord injury leads to this profound instability of blood pressure because that's disconnected. What this leads to, it's profound, massive blood pressure instability on a daily basis. So this starts in the acute phase. And I can remember during both my doctorate and in my fellowships being on the acute ward of a hospital and these patients have been just injured and they were actually falling out of their wheelchairs because they were passing out because their blood pressure was so low. And some patients were getting traumatic brain injuries on top of the spinal cord injury from falling out of their wheelchair. So this devastating situation of low blood pressure. And I mean, this isn't infrequent. This is happening on average four times a day up to 11 times a day in people with spinal cord injuries. So this daily suffering. I should mention too that in the very acute phase, right after injury, We now know that low blood pressure is resulting in poor perfusion of the spinal cord itself. And that spinal cord isn't healing as well if blood pressure is too low. So even all the way in those very early phases, blood pressure has a profound effect. And I'll just take one step further. Heart disease and stroke are fourfold more common after spinal cord injury. And that's compared to general population. And heart disease and stroke are the number one cause of death in this population. So Blood pressure instability and these orthostatic hypotensive and hypotensive events play a massive role in the quantity and quality of life across the lifespan. When we think of someone with a spinal cord injury, we appreciate that there's a disconnect between the brain and the body and that like they can't use their limbs. But that the same thing is happening in other aspects of the nervous system where now there's a disconnect between what's doing the sensing, the feeling, the responding in your brain, which is sending the signal to respond. Let's talk more about how the nervous system encodes this sense and response system for managing blood pressure. How does that work in a normal person? This is kind of one of the big passions of my life is understanding a system called the baroreflex. So you have two arms and they're kind of in this elegant battle, so to speak, between exciting your cardiovascular system and exciting your biological system or relaxing it. The sympathetic is the excitatory one. This is called the fight or flight. And then you have the parasympathetic, which is rest and digest and more to get you ready for bed in your comfortable state. The sympathetic division is responsible for blood vessel tone, and it travels through the spinal cord. 
One step upstream from that is the brainstem region. There's a region in the brainstem called the rostroventral lateral medulla or the RVLM. And that's really this kind of furnace that's pumping out excitatory signals down the spinal cord to constrict blood vessels. We go one step further higher up into the brain to an area called the NTS, or the nucleus of the solitary tract. And that's integrating all these complex signals and commands to tell that rostroventral lateral medulla how excited it needs to be. And that's taking input, very interestingly, directly from the arteries. So there's these cool barosensors that are inside the carotid artery and in the arch of the aorta, so right as soon as it comes out of the heart. And they're sensing on a beat-by-beat basis what your blood pressure is. And those two arteries are sensing through what are called cranial nerves into the NTS. So you have this kind of circuit where blood pressure is being sensed at the arteries, being integrated in the NTS, then sending its command to the RVLM, and then that descending signal is going out until the blood vessels to tell them how much they need to constrict or relax to maintain blood pressure to where is appropriate. And you can see with that explanation that after a spinal cord injury, that disconnection in the spinal cord disrupts this entire circuit. It's no longer a loop. And this is why blood pressure becomes so unstable. I see. So imagining this as a loop that goes from your baroreceptors in your neck into your heart into the brain, and then the brain sending a signal to the lower limbs and your gut to constrict those arteries to increase blood pressure. And when you have a spinal cord injury, you're not getting that signaling anymore. So your work is aiming to restore the baroreflex in these patients with an SEI so that they are now able to maintain blood pressure, which, as we've discussed, is really critical to their health. So how do you think about restoring a reflex? How do you manipulate the nervous system? So we use what you would call a neuroprosthetic approach to do this. Neuroprosthetic is a very broad term. It's any device that interfaces with your neuronal system, central or peripheral. So this can be anything from an auditory implant to deep brain stimulator to epidural stimulators. One of my close collaborators, Professor Cortine, who's on the paper, had shown in terms of motor function that you could stimulate specific segments of the spinal cord for stepping motions in a biomimetic way and you could recapitulate the walking and stepping. And so we thought if we could understand the segments and the circuits that were underlying blood pressure responses, we could target those elements and potentially reintroduce stimulation to restore blood pressure control. So there is a, a, an established literature of applying spinal cord stimulation to lead to the activation of your motor neurons to allow you to move your feet and to walk again. And so your use of this idea was to say, well, if we can do that to motor neurons, why can't we do that to the neurons of the sympathetic nervous system that are controlling this baroreflex? So basically, the idea is that there's this loop that's now not closed anymore, you're providing a hardware device that stimulates the neurons that now is able to close that loop again. Exactly. Okay. So now that we have that background on what the baroreflex is, how it's disrupted in a spinal cord injury, and your aim to kind of replicate and reinstate this reflex with a neuroprosthetic device, let's get into the specifics of your study. So how did you figure out where and how you needed to stimulate to restore signaling through the spinal cord to get this reflex restored? 
the first thing we needed to do is understand where we had to stimulate in the spinal cord to elevate blood pressure. Because we need to know, first of all, where our gas pedal is. This is a model in rats. We use a complete spinal cord injury at the third thoracic spinal cord segment. We took an epidural stimulator and we stimulated along the spinal cord while measuring blood pressure. And we did it segment by segment by segment. And we measured how responsive blood pressure was to stimulation at each segment. So after we functionally stimulated and mapped out the responsiveness of the cord, we then used some labeling to confirm. So we went out into some important structures in the periphery called ganglia that we know are connected to the blood vessels. And we injected into those ganglia labels that would trace all the way back and they climbed through the neuronal connections. And then we could count how many connections were in the spinal cord that were now connected to blood vessels. And it was really cool what we found. We found an almost perfect convergence between the functional stimulation responses, which segment was most responsive in terms of elevating blood pressure, and the density of the neurons that were actually structurally connected to the blood vessels. And we were really excited. And whenever you're excited, you have to name something in science. And we named it the hemodynamic hotspot. So you're kind of looking at it from both directions. You're stimulating the spinal cord to see if you can get that reflex, but then you're also looking at where that reflex responds, which is at these ganglions, and tracing that back. Yes, both directions, as well as we wanted a functional and a structural rationale for targeting this area. So now you know where you need to target, but for this closed loop to work, there also needs to be the sensing aspect to it. The reflex is dependent on it sensing low blood pressure. So how did you connect the sensing aspect to the stimulation aspect? The blood pressure sensing was really important too. You're right. Now we did this a few different ways. First, we needed to measure blood pressure, period. So we implanted an arterial cannula and this measures pressure on every single heartbeat. And we could then send that into our externalized, I'll call it, barrel reflex, which is essentially telling the stimulator how active the stimulation needs to be, how intense the stimulation needs to be, based on how far blood pressure is away from the set point that we've set for it. It's really similar to the thermostat in your house. A thermostat senses temperature with a thermometer, and then it's connected to your furnace, and it's basically deciding how intense the furnace needs to be to maintain temperature at a set point. So our device works similarly. So how much does it need to increase the stimulation to get it back to that healthy, safe level that patients would want it at for their daily living? Another aspect of your paper that I thought was really incredible was that you had both non-human primates and, and evidence that this works from a patient. So tell me about that process of going from rat to monkey to human. How did you have to adapt the device between those species? And what did you learn in the process? So in order to target this like hemodynamic hotspot that we had identified, we needed to design an implantable array that specifically targeted those spinal cord segments. So we had to understand the geospatial confines of the spinal cord and then the spinal column, make sure it fit inside, make sure the electrodes were right next to the structures that we wanted to target. And then we had to make sure it was implantable. So it had to be movable enough and flexible enough to actually get in there, but stable enough that it stayed in place, could be sutured and glued and really stabilized. That was a really important step and pretty challenging, especially in a smaller animal. The main difference we had to do in order to execute our closed loop system in the higher order animals was really adjusting the hardware 
that was implantable to fit these new confines. The most important thing is that the non-human primate model we used to mimic the very acute phase of spinal cord injury, which I talked about at the introduction being this critical period when the spinal cord isn't healing well if blood pressure is too low. So obviously we couldn't do that in a human model. And in the rats, they really don't develop it in that phase. So we needed to use this non-human primate model in that case. And so we were able to actually test the effect of the stimulator hours after the injury. And we found that it almost perfectly stabilized blood pressure, even in that acute phase. So this opens the door for a lot of promise for this to work in the acute phase for patients. It's actually a neural recovery tool also. In terms of the feasibility trial in a patient, that's another complication because all of the devices and hardware needs to be human clinical grade, long-term, it requires surgery, et cetera. So, I mean, that is another level of learning experience, but it was relatively straightforward in hindsight. I think in the moment it was quite challenging, but mm-hmm. in hindsight, I think it went relatively smooth for the scale of the study. So tell me about what kind of responses you were able to see in a human with this device implanted. How successful were you at restoring the barrel reflex? So we used our knowledge that we had built up in our rodent non-human primate information that we were highly confident on the spinal segment that needs to be targeted in a human. So when the device was implanted, it was perfectly in place over our hemodynamic hotspot, which gave us very strong ability to elevate blood pressure. This patient actually suffered from profound orthostatic instability that he ranks as affecting his quality of life in the order of eight or nine out of a rank of 10. He was on pharmacology on a daily basis, was trying to treat it in other ways, and it wasn't working for him. And we were able to implement our closed loop system to stabilize blood pressure in him practically perfectly. And he no longer needs to use any of his pharmacology. He hasn't used drugs since the day it was implanted for blood pressure. And he reports his quality of life in terms of blood pressure and now being almost perfect. It's gone from 8 out of 10, 9 out of 10 in terms of severity to now um, 0 or 1. That's such an incredible result. And to see that so immediate that he was able to get off of what are some pretty challenging drugs to regulate blood pressure almost immediately and Mm -hmm. to see that full effect. That's really exciting. Thanks. We're excited too. So the discussion of the results from your human subject is a really great segue into our discussion of the larger implications of this work. So my first question is, What are the key next steps for going from paper to practice? You've already helped one person, you know, how do you move this system to treat more patients? Because we spend so much time understanding this mechanistically, we're very confident in how this works. And what that has allowed us to do is not only translate into a human as a feasibility trial, but we're now using our technology in a wider, more generalizable clinical trial. We now have support that we're very excited about from DARPA, which is an organization from the U.S. military, and they would like to see our closed-loop system deployed in five years, not only with military purposes, but also for the wider spinal cord injury population. This is being also supported by some industrial partners, one of which is Onward, which is a company focused on neurostimulation 
for spinal cord injury in particular. And my institute here, the Hotchkiss Brain Institute, is also supporting this. This trial will be on closed-loop stabilization of hemodynamics, both at the level of the spinal cord in terms of oxygenation in the acute phase, and then also out into the chronic phase. So it's two clinical trials, one for the acute phase and one for the chronic phase, because I would assume that those would have different endpoints. It's actually more than two, but the two themes are, you're exactly right. It's in the acute phase and then in the chronic phase. And in the long-term vision of this therapy, we expect that patients will be implanted with this device in the acute phase as standard of care during their decompression surgery. And they'll just keep it in for the duration of the device longevity, 5, 10, 15 years. So we've talked about a lot of the benefits of this approach, but what about downsides? What are things that aren't optimal at this time or that are just kind of inherent limitations of this approach? And do you think that these can be mitigated or addressed through further engineering of the system? I mean, the biggest future barriers, which I think we've, we're overcoming now, but at the time of the paper, were a lot of the engineering issues in terms of getting it up to the grade that's necessary and reasonable for clinical use, which you know involves safety switches, controls on the regulation, biocompatibility of all the hardware implants. These are the biggest issues. I also envision that this device will not just operate off of blood pressure as an input, it will also operate off of spinal cord oxygenation in the acute phase, and then we'll switch it over to blood pressure into the later stages. So having that ability to switch over, a lot of these barriers, I wouldn't say are limitations to the study, but they're clear barriers in order to get it into the clinic. And I think we're working hard to overcome them. Right. That makes sense. Is the further development of this device something that you and your collaborators plan to do in your academic settings, in your lab, or is this something that's the basis of a startup or you mentioned onward, you know, something that's going to be out licensed to a medical device development company? You know, the truth of most medical devices, if not all, is that they do need an industry sponsor to support the eventual deployment of the trial. There needs to be a backing of the eventual widespread manufacturing, the maintenance, the continued costs of further development. So yes, we're taking the necessary steps in terms of partnering with industry to make sure this is deployed in the community. We don't want this just to stay in the lab. One of the big themes that I've been hitting on in this podcast is how you get things out of the lab. In different fields, it seems to be different mechanisms for doing that, but it makes sense with a medical device to work with people who have huge expertise in developing and deploying medical devices. So are there other types of conditions that this neuroprosthetic device could be useful for? There are quite a few exciting opportunities for this, one of which actually is Parkinson's. So around 50% of people with Parkinson's, which is a very common disorder, have orthostatic hypotension also. And, you know, this exact system could be redeployed with very little differences to treat orthostatic hypotension in those folks. There's also MS, multiple sclerosis, often presents with orthostatic hypotension, especially when lesions are in the spinal cord or the brainstem. And this device could be repurposed in that case. And, you know, we're working on larger changes to our system in order to target other autonomic functions also. So we think we've got a platform here that we can kind of module by module adjust to treat different populations in different conditions. Aaron, thank you so much for joining me on Journal Club today. I really enjoyed discussing this research and seeing where it goes in the future. Thank you so much for having me. It was a real pleasure to be here and I look forward to sharing with you our next discoveries. 
And that's it for Journal Club this week. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe, rate, and review wherever you listen to podcasts. And to learn more about how biology is technology, subscribe to our newsletter at a16z.com forward slash newsletters.